Good morning, Valley Bible Church. Pleasure to be able to worship with you this morning. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. We sang those words a number of times this morning. And they are words from a parallel passage to the text we'll be in. We'll be in John John 12, verses 12 through 19 this morning in our Bibles. It's our text, but these are words that are quoted um, from Psalm 118, but... uh, in part anyway, but in Mark and in Matthew. And they are the words that the crowd shouted out to, to Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. The first verse of the song that we sang, in case you didn't notice, was, was forward-facing, however. It was looking forward to Christ's second coming, his return when he will come again in the clouds In our passage, we will see Jesus in a bold declaration, yes, but a humble display of his authority riding into Jerusalem on a young donkey. But in that day, he will ride in on a white horse as a conquering king. Hosanna. We often sing it. It's in a lot of our songs. What does it mean? Do we know? Um, it had perhaps become already in Jesus' time just a, a expression of praise or exaltation as it has really for us, right? But the word has a meaning. It has a deeper significance, especially in the context of our passage, in the context of the psalm that is being quoted, Psalm 118. Hosanna. Hosanna is a transliteration. And for those of you from Green Acres, a transliteration is... Uh, ben does it all the time, so hopefully you'll let, let me let me do that. Anyway, I actually watched a uh, episode of the original Green Acres this week. Anyway, just to refresh myself. Anyway, Green Acres, uh, a transliteration is a word that has been transferred from the alphabet of one language to the alphabet of another, um, while at least attempting, for the most part, to retain the uh, the original sound. And so, Hosanna is a in English, is a direct transliteration from Greek, the Greek word Hosanna. And in Greek, Hosanna is a transliteration, actually, of, of a two-word Hebrew phrase that I did practice, but I'm not going to say today, because I will mess it up. But anyway, um, but yeah, so that's, that's where it comes from, as it turns out. We have other words like this in the English language. Um, we have from other languages. We also have other ones in, in the church, one that we say often example is amen we use that a lot it is important to note that one that is not an example of that is a woman so just in case you're wondering that's not actually a word and it's not a transliteration either but hosanna means save i pray i can mean give salvation now or in our uh, in our psalm psalm 118 do save we beseech you and we will be looking at john this morning we'll be walking through that but i want to begin by, uh, by reading a portion of Psalm 118. Um, this psalm is arguably the most quoted by New Testament writers. It's heavily messianic. So if you have your Bibles and you wouldn't mind standing, and while you do so, turning to Psalm 118 um, with me this morning, as you're able, if you could stand for the reading of God's Word, we'll be looking at Psalm 118, 
verses 22 through 29. Psalm 118, 22 through 29. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, Hosanna, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Would you pray with me? O Lord, the earth is yours and all it contains, the world and all who dwell in it, for you have founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into your hill? And who may stand in your holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. O Lord, we confess that this is not often who we are. We all have fallen short in so many ways. But Christ can stand there. And because of Jesus, we are cleansed of all of our unrighteousness. We have received blessings from you, O Lord, and righteousness from you, the God of our salvation. Now, Lord, would you cause the gates of our hearts and our minds and our very lives to open so that the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle, the Lord of hosts, the King of glory, may come in. Amen. You may be seated as you do and get settled. If you want to follow along, you can turn in your Bibles to John 12. You might have already been there since I mentioned it already, but John 12 this morning. We have arrived at a passage that is very familiar uh, to, to most of us. If you have been in the church for a while, it's very familiar. If you haven't, it might be new, but it's a, it's a prominent point in the life of Jesus. It's a, it's a story we find in all four of the gospel accounts. Um, we don't actually find that many of them in all four. Obviously, there's lots in just two or in three, um, and there's some overlap there. But this one is in all four. It's prominent. It's featured. In it, we see Jesus himself setting into motion the events that will follow, the events that will follow in this last week of his life, leading to ultimately to his crucifixion. And it's happening on his terms John's account is the shortest of the four gospel accounts. It also contains less of the same details that the other accounts share. It's a bit unique. Um, And we could look at all the other gospel accounts. We could do a harmony this morning and probably would take us more than this morning and look at all the different details. But we're not going to do that. We're studying the book of John. We're going to look specifically at at what John has to say, though we will perhaps mention a few details, uh, a few of the differences um, that are in other gospels. But it's important for us to remember that it is included, it is included even the way that John does, um, even in, in, in its shortness. Um, it's included for the same reason that he includes every other detail which in his gospel, which is 
is this, it is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And here John is setting the stage. He's setting the stage for what will happen, Jesus teaching in this last week of his life and all the events that will happen as he heads willingly, knowingly to the cross. So as we look at this passage this morning, one thing that's also interesting about John's account is it's really just about the event. It's not really a, he doesn't, you know, and then this happened and then this happened and this happened. It's just almost just one event and he kind of jumps around. And so we'll jump around a a little bit, so don't get too worried. Um, But as we look at the passage this morning, we're going to see three types of people and their reactions to Jesus. Not three, five actually. But the first three have to do with the great crowd. And so we're going to we might skip around a bit. We're going to take a little bit of time to set it up. Don't worry. We'll get to the outline. I know for those of you who are note takers, ah, the blanks, and is he ever going to get there? I will. Some of them are very fast, so no worries. But our, our passage begins, uh, John 12, 12 through 13, this way. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The first thing we see is that it says on the next day, our previous passage that we studied last week, Jesus was in Bethany, it said six days before the Passover, and this is now the next day, would be on Sunday, not the Sabbath, but on Sunday that Jesus is coming in. That's why we historically celebrate and and read and study this uh, the, the week before Easter, if you're not familiar with this passage, come the week before Easter, and then you'll hear it almost everywhere. But we notice that. We also notice that it says, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, it was the large crowd who had come that is coming out, and Jerusalem was filled with bustling crowds as people poured in to celebrate the Passover. Now, one Passover, sometime around AD 67 to AD 70, Josephus records that the number of people recorded to come and and to partake and celebrate Passover was about 2.7 million. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Imagine if 2.5 million people descended on Spokane Valley. We'd be be a little bit uh, shocked and awed, and I didn't look up the exact actual population of Jerusalem. I know they're used to fitting more people in smaller spaces than we are. If we added that many people to the valley, we'd all feel like all of our Privacy had been evaded or something, but, but not so over there. But nevertheless, first century Jerusalem must have been quite crowded. And many of the pilgrims who had come were looking in eager anticipation for Jesus. You'll remember at the end of John 11, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, no doubt having gone there to look for Jesus, to find him hopefully teaching, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? They're early, but they're looking for Jesus, and he's not there. They're like, maybe he's not going to come. Do you think that's possible? Because they want him to be there. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. There were already many in Jerusalem that were looking for Jesus. The passage continues, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. 
Obviously, these people had heard that Jesus was coming, and they must have heard from someone. And we remember from our passage last week that there were those who had gone out from Jerusalem, who had gone out to see Jesus in Bethany, right? And Lazarus. Many had gone to see not just Jesus, but Lazarus. And, and Lazarus was getting a lot of attention as an object of attraction, but really as evidence, right? Evidence of Jesus' power that the Pharisees was such so much evidence and, and so much so was uh, Lazarus gaining this attraction that the Pharisees wanted to kill him too, right? And some of these people had no doubt traveled back to Jerusalem ahead of Jesus, and word began to spread that Jesus was coming. Perhaps it started with whispers to one another. Did you hear? Jesus is coming. I've heard that he may be already on the road. He's been staying in Bethany. He'll be coming from the east. I wonder if they've made it as far as Bethphage. Maybe we should go out and meet him. And the news began to spread that Jesus is coming. He is coming. As I was studying this week, it just made me think of, of Mr. Beaver's words to the, to the children and C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He says, They say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. And he goes on to explain how some of them had this, uh, this almost joyous feeling. Uh, some had and mixed feelings. One had uh, basically dread or terror. <laughs> so they had mixed emotions, even though they didn't know what that, this meant. And perhaps it was this way for some of the Jews. For sure there were some of those who were eager to see their master, their teacher. They had come. They'd even gone to the temple looking for Jesus. Others may have just been curious to see what was going to happen. Jesus is coming? Oh man, remember the last time he was at a feast in Jerusalem? Whew! There might be some interesting things to see here. We know that there were also those who were probably not very excited, not very happy that Jesus was coming at this time. I mean, the Pharisees didn't want a big spectacle in the middle of Passover. But this crowd took the branches of the palm trees and went to meet him. And last week, Ben said that this week we'd be celebrating Palm Sunday. So I'm hoping he can make it to Easter by next week. No, just kidding. We won't be in Easter by next week. Nor is this actually Palm Sunday. But this is, uh, this is the, the traditionally what we celebrate uh, on Palm Sunday, as I already mentioned. Um, interestingly, the only gospel that mentions palm branches is this one. John's the only one that mentions palm branches. And yet we call it Palm Sunday. I don't know. In fact, palm is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used exclusively by John, and we'll look at that later. But I thought that was curious, because obviously historically we call it Palm Sunday. But what are we to make of these palm branches? Palm branches were a part of, of Jewish history and, and worship. They were prescribed in Leviticus 23 for the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, they were also in the ancient world um, a symbol of, of victory and triumph, especially when a liberator rode into the city. We see this in, in 141 B.C. when Simon the Maccabee rides into Jerusalem, forcing out the Syrian forces from the, from the citadel, and the people meet him with palm branches, waving them. 
T.A. Carson notes that from about two centuries earlier, palm branches had already become a national, not to say nationalist, symbol. Furthermore, at this time, they were convenient because they were everywhere. The landscape was littered with, with palm trees still. And the people to go out to see Jesus, they go out with these palm branches. And some of them may have waved them. We don't know for sure. We know from the other Gospels that they laid them on the ground before Jesus along with their cloaks so that Jesus could ride in on these. This was a, a, a tremendous welcome, a time of, of joy and celebration and rejoicing and, and victory with this incredible act. And this was an act much like we might roll out the red carpet for somebody very important. We might pull out all the stops, have a huge procession, wave American flags and you know, patriotic display. And they began to shout. And actually in the text, that word began to shout there. It's rendered really well in the NASB because it's actually imperfect active indicative, which means something progressive or continuous, something that's continuing in time, but in, in the past. So a better rendering, and some of your Bibles may have it that way already, depending on what translation you use, I'm not sure. But a better rendering would be and they were shouting. It was an action they were doing. They were shouting while all this is happening. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a part of the psalm we read earlier. And, and this would have been well known because Psalm 118 is one of the Hallel Psalms. Remember that uh, the psalms for, for Israel are their Psalter. The songs that they sing and the Hallel songs were, were sung every morning the Feast of Tabernacles. So they would have been very familiar to the Jewish people, those who are faithful. It's also an overtly messianic psalm already, and they're all clearly using it that way. But the crowds even add, even the king of Israel. You may remember back in John 6, after Jesus had fed the 5,000, it says that he perceived that they wanted to take him by storm or by force, right, and make him king. And perceiving that, what does he do? He withdraws, and he withdrew and prayed up in the mountain. He sent his disciples out to cross the sea. He would join them later walking across the sea and that incredible miracle there too. In John chapter 6, he'll meet them on the other side. But this time, Jesus doesn't withdraw, does he? No, this time, he embraces, embraces their, their praise, really, their their proclamation of him as king as he publicly makes this ride in to Jerusalem. Back to our outline, finally. True seekers find. We see that true seekers find. In our passage, there are those who, who came to the Passover seeking Jesus, and they, they found him. There's little doubt that they were a mixed group. Right? Some coming out of curiosity. Some, for sure, who had come to believe in him, but some, for, perhaps, desiring to be part of the hype. Maybe even some wanting to go back and report his whereabouts to the religious leaders as they had asked them to. When people come seeking Jesus, the crowd, back in John chapter 6, after he has gone away, they come find him. Finally, the crowd finds him on the other side of the sea. And Jesus tells them this, some hard words. He says, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. 
And some, some seek Jesus tragically only for the earthly benefits that they see in finding Him. But certainly others seek Him genuinely. In Jeremiah 29.13, God tells His people, You will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. But yet Romans 3.11 clearly tells us, tells us that there is no one who seeks after God. Jesus Himself says in John 6.44 that no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. And I will raise Him up on the last day. So what are we to make of this? Well, the There's a mystery there for sure. But this is true that if you are seeking God, most assuredly the Father is drawing you. He is drawing you to Jesus because the only way to the Father is through the Son. A couple of lessons for us. The first is, don't seek Jesus for a full belly. Don't seek Jesus for a full belly. There is no promise in coming to Christ, that you won't get sick. There's no promise that you'll get a job promotion, that the, 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 whatever terrible situation you might be in will suddenly be remedied. There's no promise that there'll be an additional zero behind the number in your bank account, or that your pigs won't die. No, the opposite is true. Jesus doesn't promise a full belly, but a cross to carry. Do you seek Jesus but not know Him? Do you seek Jesus but not know Him? Then believe. Believe. If you do not know Him but are seeking Him, it's because the Father is drawing you. Come to Jesus. Place your faith, your trust in Him, and you will find your Savior, your King. And as He promised, He will raise you up on the last day. Believer, do you seek Jesus? Why, I've already found Him. Great. That's good news. But do you still seek Him? Do you? Do you desire to know Him more? We find the Word of God, Jesus, in the Word of God, the Bible. That's why it's so important for us to be to be people of the book, people of the Word, reading God's Word, studying it, knowing it, and also people of prayer, seeking to fellowship with and commune with our Savior. The second and third types of people that we will look at are also a part of the crowd, as I mentioned earlier. And so we'll skip over verses 14 through 16. We'll come back to them. Don't worry. So verse 17 says this, So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. We see this, the true witnesses testify. If you remember, again, looking back a couple of weeks ago, John 11, 18 through 19, many Jews had come out of Jerusalem to do what? To see Jesus? No. To see Lazarus? No. They'd come out to see Mary and Martha to comfort them because Lazarus had died, and they had come out to comfort and console Mary and Martha. And these people were there. It says that many of them saw the, the miracle that Jesus did when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead by calling him out of the tomb. Later, it tells us that many who saw what Jesus had done believed in him. 
believed in him. Of course, others go back and report it to the Pharisees. But those who witnessed this and believed continued to testify of what they had seen, what they had believed. And the word testify here is the the Greek word we get our word martyr from. Martyr. These were witnesses. Beginning of last week's message, Ben recounted the story of a man who had given his life in India for his faith. There are stories like that around the world, probably even this morning, of those who are, who are martyrs, the cost of discipleship, the cost of being a witness for Jesus. It may be even in our lifetime that we will see that here. Nevertheless, these, these witnesses, they testified, they had come to know and believe in Jesus, the Messiah. They had seen the incredible miracle, something no one but the Messiah could do. Who else could raise the dead? And true witnesses testify of the truth, the things that they have seen and heard and know to be true. As they testify, others hear, and true hearers respond, as we'll see in the next verse. So so true hearers respond in verse 18, for this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. Those who heard the testimony of these witnesses responded with with action. They went out with the crowd to meet Jesus, to welcome Him and proclaim Him as their King. Again, we we don't know how many were believers. Many in the crowd may have been the same ones who in a few short days will yell, crucify Him. Many of them are, are trusting in Jesus to save them from Rome. Not looking for Him to save them from, from sin and death. They're thinking of the more immediate ramifications of having Jesus as king. We do not know who all those were in the crowd. We don't know who believed and who didn't. We do know this, that those who hear, that truly hear and understand and respond to the truth and faith will be saved. Jesus said in John 5:24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So a lesson from these two. Have you found the Savior? Bear witness of it. Bear witness of it. I know, that's a scary thing, but tell others what He's done for you. Of His work in your life. Share with others when when your prayers are answered. Or when you see God blessing, when you taste of His goodness to you. When you face difficult circumstances or the the valleys and darkness that may surround us at times. Share with others that your hope and confidence is in the Lord. You just might be the instrument that God uses to bring others to faith. True hearers may hear and respond. I will turn our attention back, as I promised, to verses 14 through 16. Verses 14 through 16 read this way. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things the disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him 
and that they had done these things to him. Jesus, finding a donkey, sat on it. Interesting how little John includes of that part of the story. He includes just enough that we know what happened, but all three other gospel accounts give far more detail into that simple statement. Interestingly, John and Matthew are the only ones that that point to the prophecy of Zechariah, and so uh, John doesn't include all those other details, but he does have a point to make, and that's this, that, uh, that Jesus is fulfilling yet another messianic prophecy. I would commend to you reading all of Zechariah chapter 9, where this comes from. Um, Zechariah chapter 9 is actually very interesting. You see the beginning, God's dealings with the nations that are, are surrounding Israel. And, uh, and then he actually says in there that, that he will, re- will redeem from them a remnant for himself from the Philistines, for himself to be his people. It's good news for us too, eh? Unless you're part of Israel, at least at this point. And then verse 10 actually goes on to look forward to Christ's second coming. But, but Zechariah 9, 9 reads this way. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus was affirming the crowd's proclamation of him as king, or perhaps it was the other way around, and they were affirming his bold claim. Either way, it's clear that Jesus riding into, uh, into Jerusalem on a donkey fulfilled the prophecy. This is perhaps the boldest move that Jesus has made in fulfilling direct prophecy about his kingship. It's interesting because Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey and his entrance into the world, they both, they both are quite humble. Jesus enters, born in a stable in Bethlehem, enters into Jerusalem now on a donkey. Not what one would expect of a king, but that's the point. They both point directly to his kingship because they fulfill messianic prophecy. Jesus is King. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. John makes that unmistakably clear. And John continues on by explaining that that the disciples, though they continued to follow along with Jesus, didn't understand all that was happening at the time. They wouldn't understand all of these things until Jesus was glorified and they had received the Holy Spirit. Later in John, Jesus will tell his disciples that when the Spirit comes, he will guide them into all truth and will make much of Jesus and disclose to them the things that belong to Christ. Lessons for us. Jesus is King, in case you didn't get that already. In case you haven't gotten that, in the book of John, it's unmistakably clear now. Jesus is King. Even when you don't understand, trust. Another lesson. Even when you don't understand, trust. Follow Jesus. No matter where or in whatever situation you find yourself, if you are a child of God, you must trust Him. He has your best and His glory in mind. Even when things are clouded, even when you can't see it, 
you're going through the midst of trials, you must not lose heart, for He is there and He knows. Then thirdly, true disciples obey. We said true disciples follow. They also obey. In other gospel accounts, there's a lot more detail given, as I said, about about the procurement of this donkey and all the things that Jesus asked His disciples to do. And they, they obey, as they do Many other times in, in the Gospel of John, they obey. For now they follow. They will scatter, um, but for now they follow. They will regroup. But obedience is a part of, of our discipleship, right? We're called to make disciples, and we're called to do that by claiming the Gospel, sharing the Gospel, by baptizing those who respond in faith, and then by teaching them to obey all the commands that Jesus has taught. So obedience is an essential part of being a true follower, disciple of Jesus. In our last verse, we see that false teachers reject. False teachers reject. It begins with these words, so the Pharisees. And I don't know if you've been struck by this, but I have throughout the book of John. It seems like you have this great story and Jesus does something and then then the crowds come to Jesus and people come to Jesus, the disciples are taught something, and they come to Jesus, and then it always ends with, but the Pharisees. Or suddenly they're added on. It seems like a verse at the end, and that happens a number of times. We see that over and over. And at first, almost a bit humorous to see their rejection. Uh, but, but really it's heartbreaking, and by now definitely heartbreaking to see. Here they are again, still unable to gain traction in their scheming against Jesus. These teachers... Of Israel, they have rejected their Messiah. They reject truth as all false teachers do. Look at their words to one another. You see that you are not doing any good. Their plans have not been working. They didn't have a cohesive plan. Remember with Caiaphas? So they created one. They came up with a plan. we got to stop this for the sake of the nation. We'll kill him. It's a good plan. In order to kill him, we got to find him. And now there's a problem because Lazarus is proof that he might be the Messiah. And so we have to kill Lazarus too. Where will this end? They'd ask the people to tell them where Jesus was. And some people had even since gone out to Bethany where Jesus was. Perhaps if they had apprehended him there, they could have done so more quietly. Regardless, it's not working. Now the crowds are clamoring to him and he has the support of the people. Whatever will they do? Lesson for us, reject those who reject truth. Reject those who reject truth. They are false teachers. Don't entertain them. The New Testament authors warn in a number of places about false teachers coming in, even from within the church, seeking to lead people astray into falsehood. So reject them. I think a word for for teachers as well is is be careful. I remember um, probably 25 years ago. I can remember that far back still, believe it or not. But 25 years ago, there was a pastor that was, had gained quite a bit of, of uh, I guess, renown uh, in the United States. I won't mention his name, but he, um, he was really, really good at asking questions. Really good. Questions that made you think, caused a lot of people to think. They even made videos of some of, just of his questions to like, be like starters for like Bible studies and stuff. Really good, really popular, all over the place. Problem was, he was no good at answering them. It was no good at answering because I don't think he knew what the truth was. And he led many, many people astray. Many contemporaries of, of ours 
astray. And then he himself also abandoned everything he claimed he believed in. It's sad. We must not leave people with questions without proclaiming the truth. Questions are good. Don't get me wrong. But we need to be cautious. As we look at these leaders, you can see in the final line that their frustration. They say, the world has gone after him. Obviously, this is exaggeration. It's hyperbole. They use the word cosmos, meaning the, not just the people, not just all the crowds, not just all the nations. The whole world has gone after him. What are we going to do? And obviously, it's not true, but this statement said in frustration is almost, almost a prophetic utterance, isn't it? Because Jesus is going to die for the sins of the world. He isn't just the king of Israel as they're proclaiming as he rides in. No, he's, he's the king of everything. Jesus is the king of glory. He's the Lord of all. And one day those who oppose him will be put in their place. This week I was looking at, at John, not John, at Spurgeon's notes on, on this, the Gospel of John and on this passage, obviously. And uh, right after verse 19, he has this little quote. And Spurgeon is wants to do this, as are some others. It, it's a quote that's said as though everybody must know exactly what he's talking about. And I did not know what he was talking about. It says this, it says, um, Come what may to stand in the way, that day the world shall see. It seemed like maybe it was missing something, so I started trying to dig for the context of this because I thought, ah, if everybody knew it when Spurgeon was writing, it's not been that long. Surely we could find some evidence of this. And it took me down a rabbit hole that I probably should not have spent my time on this week, but I did, and so I will share it because I must. But it, uh, I did find eventually some scanned biographies. You know, you can do archive, look at archiving documents and stuff of some old books that are obviously way, way out of print that, uh, that quoted the same and bits and pieces, and eventually I was able to find the actual hymn that it comes from. Even then, I only found a few copies, and they're both attributed, of those copies, they're about split half and half to who actually wrote it, so who knows. But it is a song entitled, The Might with the Right. The Might with the Right. And the chorus reads this way, that the song is talking about when, when things aren't going well, kind of it has a, a similar feel like when the the psalmist says, you know, why do the wicked prosper? But anyway, uh, it says this in the chorus, The day shall yet appear when the might with the right and the truth shall be, and come what may to stand in the way, that day the world shall see. And Spurgeon's point in that of the song is that the day is coming when everything will be revealed. These false teachers, even though they claim to be true, will be, have a reckoning. They will be uh, revealed that they are false. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so we live today as his followers in confident expectation, boldly proclaiming the truth, even in the face of adversity, until he returns or calls us home. And I'm going to call the, the, have the worship team, invite them to come up um, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. I, I mentioned earlier there's one other place where John writes about palms and I didn't want to leave you hanging. Uh, so I'd like to read a couple of verses from Revelation chapter 7. If you have your Bibles and want to turn there, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. Read this way. Now after these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Passover is just around the corner as King Jesus rides into Jerusalem. But the cross is still a ways off in our study of John. We still have a ways to go. Nevertheless, as we come to the Lord's table, to our time of communion, we partake of these symbols together as those who have trusted and placed our faith in Christ. And if you, we invite you to join us if you have placed your faith in Christ. Even if it has just been today, we invite you to do so. But if you have not placed your faith or trust in Christ, we ask that you, you simply observe and refrain. We do this because partaking of it in itself is a declaration of faith. And if you have not trusted in Christ, we would not want you to do something that would be untrue. Now the worship team is going to lead us just in a couple of verses uh, of a song. You can prepare your elements already if you'd like. Prepare your hearts, uh, and then we'll partake together before finishing. <laughs> 